This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash journal. Terms and conditions apply. A couple of weeks ago, we got two of our colleagues. Hello, uh, my name is Luciana Magalhães. My name is Samantha Pearson. Together in a studio. You're sharing the We the, are, but we've got two earbud. separate microphones. So you must be sitting very close together. <laughs> yeah. Great. All right, well, thanks so much for that There's situation. There's a baby on the way, too. Oh, right, right, yeah. Congratulations. Sam is pregnant. The three of you. Excellent. <laughs> I think we wanted to just have you guys kind of reflect. Luciana and Samantha are based in Brazil. For the last year, they've been working closely together on a story about one of Brazil's biggest companies, a mining company called Vale. Vale employs more than 70,000 people and has got a market value of about $70 billion. That's like the value of Ford and American Airlines combined. And the reason Luciana and Samantha had been reporting on Vale is because of what happened a year ago this week. So it was a public holiday in Sao Paulo. I was at the beach. I was actually writing another story about a completely different story about a gay congressman who was fleeing Brazil. And somebody told me, and I said, no, it's impossible. Uh, he, he can't be. A dam owned by Vali had collapsed. I called the firefighters who were running the rescue effort, and I asked them how many missing people are there. And they said there's more than 200. In the hours after the collapse, Samantha and Luciana started getting a clearer picture of exactly what happened. This dam collapsed at 12.28 p.m., uh, sunny Friday lunchtime. Most of the workers in the mine had gathered all together in the canteen. They were having lunch. A lot of people were outside the canteen having coffee. They saw dust on the horizon. They realized what was happening. This huge wave of mud about 100 foot high, crashed through the valley at up to speeds of 50 miles an hour. Some people were so terrified, they they just didn't move. Apparently, they just stood there. One of the interviews, really, it's always in my mind, uh, was a man. He was actually just leaving the lunchroom, and he said he couldn't even understand what was going on because it was so fast, but he knew he had to run. And he said his first thought was that all these people, his friends who were eating rice, beans, and meat, they were going to die. This dam collapsed incredibly fast. So the face of the dam uh, collapsed in less than 10 seconds. And within the next five minutes, about three quarters of the dam's contents had rushed out. And it rushed out with such force that it obliterated these buildings. I mean, absolutely flattened these buildings. And it killed people in the most brutal way. These people were torn apart. You're finding an arm, but maybe you already found the leg. And it's just just this horrible jigsaw puzzle. A lot of people at the end were being identified only by DNA. Oh, man. Because this mud just pulverized them. This was one of the worst mining disasters in history. A couple of days later, Luciana and Samantha flew to Brumanginho, 
a town of about 40,000 people in southeastern Brazil. And they witnessed the aftermath for themselves. When we went just after the collapse, it was like, I imagine, like a war zone. So many people on the streets, people were even afraid to be in, in their homes or still not believing what had happened. You had people actually digging for their loved ones themselves. People still hoping they could find their relatives alive. People hoping for miracles when there were helicopters everywhere. Dangling these body bags beneath a helicopter would be another corpse that they had recovered from the mud. And they look up to the sky and they'd be like, I wonder if that's Will, I wonder if that's George, I wonder if that's my dad, I wonder if that's my brother. The smell uh, was horrible. The smell of decomposing bodies already just, um, I think, a few days after the tragic collapse. All told, 270 people died. Volley called the incident an unforeseen accident. But Luciana and Samantha have spent the last year investigating whether it really was unforeseeable or whether the loss of life in Brumaginho could have been avoided. Today on the show, the negligence and cover-up at Volley, and the consequences that are still playing out one year later. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. And I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Friday, January 24th. Volley, the company that owned the mine, is the largest producer of iron ore in the world. But in Brazil, the company represents more than just that. So definitely, uh, Vale is a very powerful company in a poor country. One of Brazil's biggest, most important companies, most prestigious companies as well. I mean, generally, before the disaster, uh, and even now to an extent, people are proud of working for this company. Not only for workers, but for contractors. Working for Vale is a dream come true. Vale was the main employer at Brumadinho before the accident. Everyone wanted to work for Vale because it had the best benefits, it had the best uh, salaries. So uh, the city really depended on Vale. People in Brumadinho, they were very proud to wear their uniform with Vale. It's a sign of uh, status. Despite the fact that Vale is considered a prestigious company, this actually wasn't the first time something like this had happened. Only three years earlier, just 80 miles away, another Vale dam collapsed in a town called Mariana. 19 people were killed. After that 2015 collapse, Vali promised it would increase spending on safety. And later, when a new CEO took over, he came up with a new slogan, Mariana Never Again. They hired a new CEO. This was a a long process, and this was well reported in Brazil that they were looking for the best person. They went through headhunters. Really, they wanted to find the best person And they hired Fabio Schwartzman. He had had good performance in the companies he worked before. He was famous already in Brazil as this kind of super CEO who could miraculously increase the returns of companies. Schwartzman didn't have a background in mining when he came to Volley. 
But he also didn't have a background in paper when he started his previous job as CEO of a Brazilian paper company, and he still managed to increase revenue there. And that track record was important because he wasn't just brought in to focus on the safety of Vale's dams. Just at the time when safety required spending, he then ushered in an unprecedented cost-cutting culture at Vale. According to the documents that we had access during our investigation behind closed doors. The board at Vali saw an opportunity for Vali to enhance their market value and perhaps become the biggest in the industry. Schwarzman's cost-cutting drive would impact things, like the way Vale maintained its dams. In the mining business, dams aren't used to hold back water. They're used to hold back all the waste that's left over from mining, which means they aren't a source of revenue. They're a cost of doing business. So Schwarzman spent just enough to comply with the government's dam regulations, but not a whole lot more. And this approach of cutting costs was incredibly successful. Vale went from losing $12 billion in 2015 to earning almost $7 billion of profit in 2018. So it seems as though for a time, Schwarzman seemed very successful. Yes. The the company's financial picture was turning around significantly, and he was also saying that um, Mariana never again. So it looked as if the company might be learning from this mistakes. But then you, in your reporting, discovered a different picture about what was happening inside the company. Yeah, I mean, I think between us, (laughs) we've probably read thousands of pages of documents in Portuguese legal documents from prosecutors, police, state, federal prosecutors, federal police. We've spoken to hundreds of people, I would say, in total. We went so many times that every time now I go to I get to the airport in Minas, I kind of feel at home. And now, like, I like walk or in a car in Brumadinho and I wave to people, like, because I know people on the street. So I feel like, like, almost like a resident. One of the people Samantha and Luciana met in Brumadinho was a woman named Flavia Coelho. Luciana also spoke to her many times over the phone. <laughs> Flavia Coelho, she's 36, she has two daughters. She actually was born close to the dam. Uh, She said the dam and the mine were like a backyard to her family. She lived there until she was 14. Flavia's father was the mine's longest-serving employee. He was orphaned at the age of seven, and he never went to middle school. He worked there since the dam was built in the late 1970s. Before he was killed in the collapse... He told Flavia many times about the problems he saw at the dam. Regarding the dam, Flavia told me that uh, her father spoke to the managers about the problems, but he thought they were not going to do anything about it. Flavia told me that her father's uh, managers told him he was worried for no reason, that his worries were not going to become true. Flavia's father wasn't the only mine worker who had concerns. Samantha and Luciana talked to other employees who'd said they'd also seen signs that the dam was in trouble. There were warning signs that an average Joe would understand. We spoke to kind of low-level mine workers who, for example, saw kind of wet patches on the face of the dam. They also told us they saw, um, for example, lush grass growing on parts of the dam. 
The reason that lush grass and wet spots are a warning sign is because those parts of the dam are supposed to be completely dry inside. The dam in Brumaginho was what's known as an upstream dam. Waste from the mine gets laid down in layers, and once the layer dries and hardens, the next layer is added, and so on, until the dam is full. And it basically stays there forever. The idea is that they incorporate it into the environment and they just leave it there. It's the easiest method of construction, the cheapest method of construction, but the most dangerous. But Vale managers didn't listen to the warnings that were coming from mine workers like Flavia's father. But Flavia told me that uh, the managers told her father he was worried for nothing and that engineers were going to take care of the dam. Flavia's father felt that he couldn't say anything more because people were not taking him seriously as he didn't have a university degree. The warning signs kept getting worse. A few months before the collapse, as part of standard maintenance, workers installed a drainage pipe in the face of the dam. That's supposed to prevent buildup of water inside the dam, and normally just water seeps out. But this time... What actually happened was that mud started gushing out of this pipe. Now, this implies that actually what's inside the dam is completely liquid, which shouldn't mm-hmm. be the case. It should be a, a kind of hard and dry mass. And they panicked, you know, according to the testimony of people at the time who worked on the, on the problem, according to what they've told police and prosecutors. So what did they do? <laughs> they used 60 sandbags to plug the hole, took them three days... And they didn't inform the regulator at the time, according to a report from the regulator into the disaster. I mean, the big fear at the time, I think, was that the regulator has the power to shut down a mining operation. So the idea was just to try and solve the problem on the spot. Later, government regulators said that had they known about these problems, maybe the collapse could have been avoided. A spokesman for Vali said the dam's managers believed they had complied with regulations. But it wasn't just Vali's own employees that were seeing problems. In Brazil, mining dams need to be approved by an external inspector. And Vali's inspector was the highly regarded German auditing company Tuvsud. Tuvsud gives internal grades to dams. The lower the number, the more dangerous it is. And when Tuvsud inspected the Brumaginho Dam, it didn't perform well. Afterwards, the auditors told police that, in fact, this was the lowest number for any dam that they had audited for Valley. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the auditors said that this was the lowest number he'd ever seen in the world. And oh it, was, it was that low. And yet, in the months before the dam collapsed, Tufsud certified that the dam was safe. Twice. So, according to investigators, uh, the company agreed to certify the dam even though it knew its uh, safety factor was below what would be required for an upstream dam. Why would Tufsud sign off on a dam that it knew wasn't safe? The German auditor was meant to be a supposedly independent external auditor, but on the other hand, they were also earning a lot of money to come up with a, a project to dismantle the dam. Now, if they had, as an auditor, if they had said, no, this dam is unstable, we're going to have to shut the whole thing down, evacuate the mine, that would have basically cancelled out their contract. They wouldn't have been able to do the other thing they had been hired to do. So this is a clear 
conflict of interest. What has Tufsud said about this decision to certify the dam as safe? Tufsud has actually said very little since January. Tufsud have always replied to us with a kind of a blanket comment just saying that they're interested in finding out the reasons for the, the breach of the collapse and they're cooperating with authorities. Luciana and Samantha saw text messages and emails showing that knowledge of this conflict of interest went all the way up to executives at Tufsud's headquarters in Germany. And back in Brazil, Luciana and Samantha found that within Volley, knowledge of safety issues with its dams also went very high, perhaps as high up as the CEO himself. We also found out that two weeks before the collapse of the dam, uh, there was an email called The Truth that was sent to Fabio and several other executives. This email is from a, an anonymous person who works within Valley. No one, even the investigators, still don't know who this person is. He specifically says that dams are at their limit. But investigators see this email as significant precisely because of the response of Fabio Schwartzman, the CEO. He responded by asking to go hunt down the author of the email and called the person a cancer. Vali and uh, Fabio Schwartzman's uh, lawyer, what they said was that because it was generic, it wasn't enough for them to take action. And that's why they wanted to find this person. Fabio wanted to look at him in the eye, something like this, and talk directly to the person. The company failed to act on workers' warnings, and Tuvsud signed off on the dam safety when it knew there were much bigger problems. But beyond those systemic failures, there was one incredibly simple fix that might have saved lives. There was also a siren that was supposed to go off, and it never did. Why not? Why didn't the alarm go off? Well, that, that is very, very interesting. We've heard um, Fabio in his testimony, the CEO, he said the person was having lunch. Other people say he was not uh, there at the time. And what is surprising to me is that apparently there was one person and this person had a specific shift. So when this person was not there, who was taking care of the alarm? Right, and also I'm shocked that that there is just one person whose job it is to sound an alarm. You'd think there'd be at least some sort of an automated alarm system that would go off. <laughs> we are shocked too. Because that alarm didn't go off, the mine workers were caught off guard in the canteen when the dam broke. So through your reporting, you're able to uncover, it sounds like, a great deal of evidence that many people inside of Vale, including potentially the CEO himself, were aware that there were significant concerns about this dam. Yes, um, definitely investigators believe that top executives were aware of problems at dams, including Brumadinho. So why didn't they do anything about it? Well, that's the million-dollar question. There wasn't a sufficient cost from Mariana in 2015 to the company. Now, of course, you're a company, so your main goal still is to make money for your shareholders. Fine, but the, the first thing you think you would do would be to, you know, sit down and say, hey, how many other dams do we have that are built in the same way? Are they in danger of collapse? What can we do to stop them collapsing? You hire experts, you follow their advice, you examine company culture, you, you hire a CEO who understands mining. 
who perhaps you bring in more board members, who with mining experience. But what is so shocking is that Valley did nothing, none of this. Four months after the disaster in Mariana, the shares had already recovered to the same level. No one has gone to jail yet over the Mariana disaster. I, I don't think anyone will. So really, I mean, that's key. If there was no, you know, there was no significant cost to the company, why would it change its ways? One of our big questions since the January disaster in Brumadinho is what will be the cost this time to the company of the disaster? And will this cost be so great that it will act as a deterrent? After the break, the costs Volley is beginning to face. This episode is brought to you by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI enables rapid access to secure, traceable, hallucination-free insights from enterprise systems, all while using any LLM, helping enterprises turn the invisible into the obvious. Learn more at c3.ai. This episode of The Journal is brought to you by KPMG. At KPMG, we make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. We work closely with clients to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity, develop bold solutions that innovate industries, and create better outcomes driven by data. Brighter insights, bolder solutions, better outcomes. It's how our people make the difference. KPMG, make the difference. Welcome back. Immediately after the 2019 Brumaginho disaster, Vali saw a swift reaction from the markets. The day after the collapse, uh, the share fell 25%. Vali was uh, concerned that other dams, and of course, this has a big reputational weight on, on the company. The company was concerned that other dams could have a similar problem. But overall, the pain didn't last. The mine at Brumaginho had been destroyed by the collapse. And the Brazilian government forced the company to suspend operations at some other mines, too. And strangely, this ended up being good for Vale. This had an effect on the global market. As I said, Vale is such a huge, powerful company in the industry, not only in Brazil, but in the global mining industry. So the fact that it had to shut down uh, production at one of its biggest mines as a result, this caused production of iron ore to fall worldwide, which then created a shortage. This made the price of iron ore go up, I think, to a five-year uh, high. Which then allowed value shares to increase as well. So in terms of the cost from investors, it's actually been relatively small. But while investors may have let Volley off the hook for a second time... Prosecutors and investigators, they don't want this to end in pizza, as we say in Brazil. Like when I say ending pizza means nothing's going to happen. They really want charges to be filed and they want people to pay for uh, the tragic uh, collapse. Brazilian police spent eight months on the first stage of the investigation into the relationship between Volley and the German auditing company Tuvsud, which said the dam was safe. And at the end, there was a press conference and the chief police said, I'm not sure the collapse could have been avoided because the water was building inside the dam for a long time. But the loss of lives could and should have been 
avoided because there were enough signs and Valley knew that the offices and the lunchroom were on the way of the mud. At the instruction of prosecutors and in the face of public outrage, Fabio Schwartzman stepped down as CEO in March. And on Tuesday, Schwartzman and 15 other people, including some high-level Vale executives and Tubsud employees, were charged with environmental crimes and with homicide with intent for the 270 people who died when the dam collapsed. So during the press conference, prosecutors accused Mr. Schwartzman of prioritizing the company's share price over the safety of its employees. Prosecutors said Mr. Schwartzman was fully aware of problems at the dam. So according to prosecutors, Vale knew exactly the risk it was, it was taking in Brumadinho. Prosecutors said everything was calculated at Brumadinho. They knew exactly, Vale knew exactly how much a life would cost. They knew exactly how much they would pay if a car was uh, eaten by the mud. They knew how much they would pay if a vacuum cleaner was destroyed. They knew exactly how much it was going to cost. So according to prosecutors, Valley executives, they knew the risks, they knew how much they would have to pay in case the dam collapsed, but, but they decided to take the risk and 270 people died. The charges carry a possible sentence of at least 12 years in prison. Valle said the numbers were from a document that was based on a hypothetical scenario. Schwartzman's lawyer said the charges were unjust and that as CEO, he had taken many measures to improve safety at Valle's dams. The lawyer also said that Schwartzman was never made aware of problems at Brumagino specifically. Tovsa didn't comment on Tuesday's charges, but it said it was cooperating with authorities. So, what happens now? First, a judge has to accept the charges. And then the case will start making its way through Brazil's slow-moving court system. Legal experts think it could be years before it's resolved, leaving the people in Brumaginho in limbo. Vali won't be reopening the mine. But even though it's closed, the mine workers and the families of the victims are still reliant on the company. For the past year, Vali has been giving them monthly payments. And for a town that has lost so much... This influx of cash is hard for many people to make sense of. All of a sudden, the town became, like, very rich. Like, people go out on the streets and spend money. Sometimes they spend money to make up for the loss. We met some people like this who buy things every day. We met a, a woman whose husband was, uh, was killed by the mud. She has a daughter, and she goes to shops every day. Every day she has to buy something for her daughter. She feels it's a way to to deal with the loss. I met a a woman at one of the shops. She was um, 20-something, four kids, unemployed, a single mother. She was buying a refrigerator. And I said, how do you feel? She said, it's sad but I would never have this refrigerator at my home if it wasn't for, for this money that is coming and this is nothing for Valley and this is changing my life. What a strange moment for this town to be living in. It is, it is. Amid this loss and this despair, 
there, you have uh, a lot of money. And this city is living a kind of a sad dream. It's sad because so many people died. It's a dream because they are having access to things that they couldn't have before. People go to the stores trying to find meaning. I think they're trying to heal. You can't imagine something like this. The last of Vali's monthly payments to the victims of Brumagino will be made this month, one year after the disaster. But under pressure from authorities, Vali agreed to extend the monthly payments for some of the worst affected residents until November of this year. Meanwhile, Vali is still operating nearly 130 iron ore dams. About 10 of them are inactive upstream dams, like the one in Brumagino. They're in the process of being dismantled. That's all for today, Friday, January 24th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Your hosts are me, Kate Leinbaugh. And me, Ryan Knudsen. We're produced by Annie Minoff, Ricky Nevetsky, Sarah Platt, Willa Rubin, and Rob Zipko. Our senior producer is Pia Gadkari. Annie Rose Strasser is our supervising producer. Griffin Tanner is our engineer. Our executive producer is Gerard Cole. Our theme music is by So Wiley. Additional music from Bobby Lord, Peter Leonard, So Wiley, Billy Libby, and Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks this week to Jorge Just. Thanks for listening. See you Monday.